From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The federal budget has had a less than enthusiastic response from the public, many of whom were disappointed that it didn't offer more to alleviate cost of living pressures. In particular, people are horrified at the enormous increases in power prices that are coming through in the next 18 months, which were highlighted in the budget numbers. The government is now working up a plan to bring down the very high price of gas. But both the policy questions and the politics are challenging. Bruce Mountain is Director of the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University and he joins us today to talk us through some of the issues. Bruce Mountain, clearly the failure in the last decade to get energy policy sorted properly has left Australia in a very bad position. On top of this came the Ukraine war. If we'd been properly prepared, could we have avoided this power price crisis? Uh, Thank you for asking me onto your show. It certainly has been a crisis so far, uh, even more so in the EU than here. I think our policymakers have made some errors. I think one of the few bits of our policy landscape that they have agreed is unrestricted uh, access to our East Coast gas markets, That would not have been terribly much of a problem if, in fact, we had a good um, gas resource on the East Coast as we do on the West Coast. Um, But it has been obvious for quite some time that our Queensland coal seam gas resource is nowhere near as good as it was cracked up to be. And so the extremely tight East Coast gas market and the uh, consequential price risks, I think, could have been foreseen. And I think that more could have been done to to actually know that we were going to be in the situation that we are in now. So could you give us some idea of how you see the relative weighting of the factors in these soaring energy prices? I think gas scarcity, uh, as mentioned, has been a big problem, but we also have had surging black coal prices as seaborne black coal uh, has grown uh, to meet as a substitute for gas, which has become even dearer. Um, we also have electricity markets here where prices are actually established at the margin. It's the most expensive generator that sets the market clearing price. Uh, While this is an orthodox approach, uh, we can see the consequence of it is bringing in very marked impacts in in the uh, power markets, uh, which is having a major impact on end users. This is a global problem, and there are many other power markets where they are rethinking this method. Now, some people don't want a a long-term future for gas, which is at the centre of uh, the the current considerations of how we deal with the present situation. They uh, point to it being a fossil fuel and don't want to see it as part of the transition. How do you see the role of gas? I think as fuels go, gas has many attractive attributes. Uh, It burns cleanly. Uh, It's easy to store. It can be uh, shipped easily on pipelines at a low cost. Um, But it also comes with nasty local and global uh, impacts on the environment. I think 
we are in the fortunate position of having a clean and cheap substitute for gas in the form of the wind and sun. Uh, And I think we have much to gain by substituting electricity from the wind and sun for gas. In many other countries, most notably our trading partners, uh, South and East Asia, China, almost all of the EU and the US, they do not have the combination of uh, land, sun and wind that we have. Uh, They have a much greater need for gas than we do. I think we should play to our our, our strengths and uh, I see no great future for gas here. Within short-term memory, Scott Morrison was actually talking about a a gas-led recovery. Was that always nonsense or did circumstances change or what? So, yes, the argument for gas as a fuel to bridge the gap between coal as our dominant source and wind and solar was plausible 20 years ago. Uh, But things change. Gas has become much more expensive, even before you count the environmental impacts. Uh, And exploiting the wind and sun and chemicals for storage has become much cheaper. Uh, So I'm afraid uh, I think it was simply not plausible to imagine we had a future in gas. Um, And uh, and so I think we need to move with the times. So do you think that Morrison was uh, sold a pup or was just reflecting an ideological position? I think it was an ideological position. Um, I think he, he was inclined to wish it to be a proposition. I never saw any serious argument on its merits on the issue. I think it was an ideological perspective that we should continue to have a future in gas. Gas has been a preferenced fuel for quite some time, and I think they fail to realise the detrimental impacts of international exposure to our East Coast gas markets. And we, we couldn't have both a lucrative export market and cheap gas on the East Coast. Well, without a reservation scheme, presumably. Yes, I think. But if you're going to reserve the gas for the local market, your ability to export gas profitably to the export market is actually undermined. The the essential point is there's a scarcity of gas. Our East Coast gas resources just no it has turned out to be nowhere near as good as it was claimed to be. Uh, and so I think we are we are forced to choose somewhat between a lucrative export market and cheap gas for local supply. It seems to work quite well in Western Australia where they have a reservation scheme. Is that because there's more gas available there? Yes. The essential difference between the East and the West Coast is the West Coast has bountiful gas and the export capability is not so large as to eat into the availability of gas for the local market. That's not the situation that we have on the East Coast. So the Albanese government is now grappling with what to do about these rising power prices. It might have thought earlier that it had a bit of time to come to grips with this, but now it's becoming more urgent, uh, certainly both substantially and politically. What are the options and what are the best of these options? This is a difficult question. I think it's true to say uh, that that this is a weeping sore. It's it's been as a problem around for quite some time. 
And I think it's quite right to say we are reaching the point at which choices need to be made. I think, first and foremost, uh, a proper resource tax must be on the table. And specifically, I should think a levy on exported gas uh, may be a useful proposition. I think Mr. Putin has strained Russia's role as a, a reliable fuel supplier, oil and gas supplier. Uh, and I think the global market for LNG is now much stronger as a consequence. And the major Australian gas exporters can expect much higher prices for quite some time into the future. This is ultimately a windfall. Uh, and surely the argument for its taxation is reasonable. Uh, secondly, there are some trade-exposed industries that are, that are facing very great pain as a result of the extraordinary surge in gas prices. I think this has an economic impact on employment, uh, on profits, on industries that have been built up over time. And I think some price refuge for those industries will have an economic benefit that is likely to be a good deal higher than the cost. Um, third, there are still many Australian households that use gas for heating water and for heating spaces, most notably in um, Victoria. Uh, I think means-tested bill, not a price relief, for those households that battle to afford gas for these purposes would be worthwhile. Uh, but I don't think at the expense of effort in drawing those households off gas, uh, there are cheaper, uh, cheaper ways of heating water and heating spaces and also much, much cleaner ways of doing that. Fourthly, I think a more realistic price cap in our various spot gas markets are likely to do more good than harm. Some of the absurdly high prices we see in the spot markets have not been useful, uh, and I don't think there's much harm in capping them at a lower level. Are any of these options, especially the early ones you were mentioning, going to uh, exports, um, super profits and so on, do any of these carry sovereign risk? Um, I think it'll often be claimed that any intervention of the government in the market carries a sovereign risk. Uh, I think that counter-argument is par for the course. I think generally it lacks merit other than in respect of the government um, intervening in existing contracts. I think they are sacrosanct. Uh, I think the government would do damage to our reputation should it seek to undermine those existing contracts. But I should think we can go a long way to solving the problem short of doing that. So I don't think there is a substantive sovereign risk argument that would stop the government from getting stuck into these issues in a meaningful way. Obviously, Labor's promise to cut household power bills by $275 a year by 2025 has bitten the dust. But where can households realistically expect to be with their bills by 2025 compared to now? Yes, I think it's a problem forecasting future prices. Um, hopefully, governments will not do that in future because there's so many factors that they can't influence. I think it, it should be pointed out that there are many households that can meet a large part of their own demand from their own rooftop solar supply. And I think many more will add rooftop solar in the next next years. Um, this will hedge their own exposure to the volatile wholesale markets and hedge their own price risk. Of course, many low-income households that rent do not easily have this option. And so I think for those households in particular, 
uh, welfare policy and price insulation or bill insulation, even better, uh, will be an important part of uh, where household energy bills ultimately turn out to be. I think in time, decarbonisation promises us a cheaper future, but realistically, it will take time for that to be achieved. Well, on that question, Labor promises to increase the share of renewables in the national electricity market to 82% by 2030. Is this realistic? Uh, It will certainly mean uh, a much greater rate of decarbonisation from what we've achieved in the last decade. Every time I look into this, I don't find insurmountable technical barriers and and neither do I think there's a capital barrier. I think the capital for this can be found. I think rather the challenges are one of industrial organisation Uh, Many factors need to be brought together and government alone has the authority to pull all the necessary strings. Uh, This does not mean an end to the the market, but decarbonisation will mean state governments in particular become dominant in drawing in new supply. And I think to some degree they will also become active in undertaking that new supply by being a source of new wind and solar generation. And what will we need to do in terms of baseload power to support a very high level of renewables? This term baseload is is often used and misunderstood, I think. It's an engineering construct that arose in the limitations of nuclear and coal generators and not being able to flexibly change their output. They were the type of generators that needed to be switched on and left on. Our new world has variable wind and solar supplemented by storage. That combination will be just as effective in meeting the variable demand. We don't have baseload demand, we have variable demand. Uh, And so I think the, the challenge is bringing together the wind and solar that's variable with storage in meeting the varying demand. It's a big challenge, but there are no plausible studies that I know of that say it's it's a challenge that we can't meet. Now, you've been a critic of the national electricity market, which links electricity in Eastern Australia. How do you think it should be changed or should it be scrapped? Yes, this is a fascinating and complex issue. The regional energy market covering the south and eastern states had a rationale when gas and different types of coal, black and and brown coal, were the dominant energy sources. Uh, In this context, a regional energy market promised to bring about trade uh, that would be beneficial for importers and exporters. Although this was a reasonable rationale, in fact, the so-called national market, in fact, it's a regional market, has not really proved its worth. Um, In spite of enormous efforts, the promised cost and price reductions have not happened over the 25 years that we've had this market. Furthermore, coal and gas are on its way out and the future is the wind, uh, sun and storage. And all our states have comparable access to wind and sun and storage. And so the gains from regional trade are likely to be even smaller than they were when we had a fossil-based system. And so the evidence we have is that the gains from trade cannot justify the enormous costs of expanding the transmission network needed to bring about such trade. 
Um, finally, I think we are now in times of very rapid change. Our challenge is to build wind and solar and storage capacity and and also new uh, lines to, to link the wind and solar to the load. And those challenges are essentially regional and local. They involve most critically local people, workers, the first peoples, and those who are able to guard the environment locally. I think uh, national committees with an empire mindset uh, have little to contribute to these challenges. These arguments were considered very, very subversive even three years ago, but I don't think they are anymore. Uh, all the states have now stepped up to the to the challenges in their regions. Uh, all of them have programs underway to rapidly decarbonize. And I think that that is where the action is really going to happen. So in this context, I think multi-regional structures don't serve any useful purpose and I think reasonably should be put out to pasture. I think the last year has certainly underlined the fact that uh, we're in a very volatile world as far as energy is concerned. How do you think this will affect Labor's ambitions on climate and energy policy? Will it slow down the transition to clean energy or will it make that transition more expensive? How do you see it? I think many of the oil and gas companies are saying that these events have proved their importance and and that we should never have moved away from oil and gas. They would say that, but I think the eye-watering huge debt that the European governments are now contemplating in order to manage the fossil fuel price risk that we're seeing, there is no shortage of finger-pointing at those who have dithered in giving gas and coal a flick. I think it has strengthened the resolve to transition more deeply and more speedily, and we're seeing this in Europe and, and the US I think locally, exactly the same perspective is taking shape. I think perhaps the fact that we have somewhat dithered and now everyone is clamoring for cleaner sources might push up the price of those sources. And so the the rate of the transition, or rather the cost of the transition, may be a bit dearer than it would have been had we, uh, you know, had we taken action sooner. I think all of that's true, but relative to the alternative fossil fuels, which are now even more expensive, I think it's become even more attractive to move to cleaner sources quickly. Now, just finally, the federal opposition is examining whether to include nuclear energy in its policy offerings at the next election. And that's come in for a good deal of criticism. What's your view about that? Cost-effective nuclear power always seems to be a decade away. This has almost become a a law. Um, I think we should climb the mountain that is at our feet before trying to climb the mountain range in the distance. Uh, Countries without our endowment of wind, land and sun have incentives to make the Countries without our endowment of wind, land and sun have incentives to make nuclear work. Uh, We have no prospect of being successful pioneers in this field. Uh, Why don't we leave it to the British, French or Chinese to do the hard yards uh, while we quietly get on with the job of realising the advantages we have? Um, Just as importantly, most of our existing coal generators are on their last legs Getting alternative energy supply into the energy system quickly is now critical. 
I think policymakers uh, need to have their heads down in implementing this rapid change. Uh, I don't think there's time to lose on an esoteric discussion of future possibilities when we have much better options at hand now. Bruce Mountain, thank you very much for spending time with us today to discuss these very difficult and complex issues. A lot of policymakers currently certainly have their heads down trying to work out some solutions to them. That's all for today's Conversations Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.